It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you'll be perfectly unified in mind and thought. Brothers and sisters, some of you, oh, sorry, brothers and sisters, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there is a quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still, um, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus. I'm just going to call him Crispus because it works. Gaius, that none of you say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized a household of uh, Stephanus. Um, beyond that, I do not remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's Tim. Let's just pray before I, I jump in. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can be here uh, as your people, as your called people together. Thank you that we can worship and sing songs of praise remembering the things that you've done for us. Uh, we ask that you work amongst us tonight, change us and shape us by your word. Amen. Bit of a confession, I'm a bit of a Twitter fanatic. I love Twitter. Um, I need to be clear when I say that. Um, I don't tweet. Is that the verb? You tweet on Twitter? I think it is. Um, I don't actually tweet, but I'm a, maybe even a little bit more disturbing, I'm a Twitter stalker. And so I sit there and watch what people say on Twitter. And I follow a whole bunch of people. So I follow people who uh, write stuff about sport, particularly Arsenal. I'm an Arsenal supporter, but also about the Premier League and different things. I follow some health bits and pieces. I don't follow politi politics deliberately because sometimes the engagement is just really, really toxic. And I think that points to a deeper truth that we can see in the Twitterverse, right? I feel like people say stuff on Twitter that they're never going to say one-to-one. -one. They're never going to say this stuff in conversations, but if you ever go on Twitter, and it can be something inane and inconsequential, like a soccer team, who really cares, but just the, the violence and the toxicity of the language which, with which people engage on something like Twitter, it's just, it's quite shocking. It's quite shocking. And it seems that that's pointing at a, at a reality in our society that we're seeing more and more and more, particularly as, as we move into the future. It seems like we're losing the ability to disagree well. So we're losing the ability to disagree well. I think we saw a really um, clear example of that in our last federal election. Now, I'm not going to say which side was right and wrong. I'm not going to get up there. It's not appropriate to do that from the pulpit. But just the way the different sides and the people who advocated for different sides spoke to each other was incredibly revealing. Like I said, we don't disagree well. Um, and I was reminded of the, the fact that this has actually seemed to be getting worse. Um, recently, one of our ex-Prime Ministers, a guy called Bob Hawke, passed away. Now, again, I'm not advocating him or criticising him. I'm not saying anything good or bad about his leadership. Um, but I was amazed. I watched an Australian story special on ABC on Bob Hawke. And what was particularly striking was that, obviously, supporters got up and said wonderful things about him, but opponents got up and said wonderful things. And so a prominent liberal leader, a guy called John Hewson, gave this glowing tribute of Bob Hawke, the man, the politician, but also the man. And amazingly, John Howard got up and gave an amazing tribute to Bob Hawke. Now, obviously, that's the, the political slash social situation, say, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But here's a question. Do you think that would happen in our modern world? Do you think we can disagree and not play the person, but just play the idea or the argument. 
It seems that more and more we're losing the ability to disagree well. We don't disagree well. Uh, people suggest about reasons why this might be the case. One writer suggests that the fact that we don't have like a, he calls it a bit of an academic, he calls it a meta-narrative. But all that is is basically a pre-agreed upon set of ideals and ethics by which governs all the way we all think, right? And when that disintegrates, the only way we can engage with those who disagree with us is through kind of abusive words. We're trying to almost bully or intimidate the other person to agree. And we see that more and more in society, don't we? We don't disagree well. Now, that's in our kind of culture. That's where we are at as a Western society in Australia, but also other parts in the West. What about in the church? What about in the church? How do we handle disagreements? How do we handle division? Are we, and when I say church, I mean the bigger church, but also specifically here at Establish, are we able to disagree well, not on politics, but it might be politics, but just on personal stuff, on the way things happen, on relationships. Can we disagree well? Because I really feel like the way we handle division and disagreement says so much about what we really believe. I'll say that again. The way we handle disagreement and division says so much about what we believe. Um, obviously, this is what this passage is talking about, this idea of division in the church, hence the title of the talk. I'm just going to give you a bit of a roadmap. I like to do that of where I'm heading. So Paul just gives a pretty simplistic, at least on first glance, simplistic command, imperative, slash sort of encouragement to be unified. So that's the first thing I'm going to explore. Secondly, I'm going to say, why do we find it so hard to be unified? Why is it so difficult? And thirdly, how we actually find unity. That's where I'm going. Hopefully it's helpful. First idea, be unified. This is Paul's kind of imperative here. It's quite clear, pretty straightforward. Verse 10, hopefully it's on the screen. I organised that properly, yes I did. These are the words of Paul. Remember going on from Lee's talk last year where he talked about the church and grace working its way out through the church. He goes on to a much more specific um, instance here. Verse 10, so I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions amongst you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Okay, so they were to be united. It's pretty clear. He actually goes to quite extreme uh, extents to make his point. There. Look what he says here. To agree with one another in what you say. Then he goes on, no divisions, no divisions at all. Seemingly, no divisions. He goes on, it kind of intensifies perfectly, perfectly united in mind and thought. So, be united. Seems kind of extreme though, you know. No divisions, perfectly united. Is Paul kind of uh, envisioning some sort of 1984 kind of dystopian society where we're forced to agree and think the same stuff? Is that what he's talking about? I don't know if you've seen The Simpsons. I love The Simpsons. There's an episode. I think it's one of those Halloween specials where, um, I don't know, it's a bit of fantasy, but Homer um, is kind of, I think he gets his hand stuck into a toaster and he's taken to this dystopian reality where Ned Flanders is in charge of the world. I think I've got a picture yeah, Ned Flanders is in charge of the world. And they all need to dress in the same way and wear the, the same tie, the same purple shirt. And they all got to say things like, how do we And they've got to smile. And there's this situation where Homer's grumpy and he actually gets forced to smile. He's getting forced to agree. And it's called re-nedification. So is that what actually Paul is talking about? This kind of unhealthy, dystopian society where you need to think in a certain way. You need to fall in line. I actually don't think so. And the reason I say that is because Paul is a chronic disagreeer. 
And, I, and I, hopefully I'm not speaking heretically here, and I'm probably on a bit of a, a sort of a, th a thin thread theologically, but let's go with it. I think Paul at times was a pretty difficult guy to get along with. And if you read the Bible, you can see that. I've got a few instances here. So Paul was a massive disagreeer. He wasn't afraid to disagree with others. I'm going to take you to a passage from Acts. I'm just going to sort of jump into this, where he has a really big disagreement. Um, hopefully it's on the screen. 15 verse 36, chapter 15, 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, sharp disagreement that they parted company. They couldn't even work together. They couldn't even sort of be in the same sort of thing. So Barnabas went this way, Paul went that way. So Paul was not afraid of disagreement. Another really clear example is from Galatians. Perhaps you know what I'm going to say, Galatians 2. There's this sort of conflict between Paul and Peter. Okay, so this is going from verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to, this is the words of Paul, had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very, very wrong. And when he arrived, he ate with the Gentiles believers, and it finishes with this. He calls Peter a hypocrite. And the people who are following him, hypocrites as well. And so Paul is not saying that we should be happy-clappy. Oh, we agree with one another. Uh, Lee or Tim or James says something, therefore I've got to fall in line. No division. You've got to keep your mouth shut. He's not saying that. I think he has given us a framework by which we can understand unity, though. I think he's using a bit of hyperbole to make his point. But I think he is actually pointing to the kind of unity that we should have. And I think he focuses on one element. I'm going to take us back to the part that Lee preached on last week. And hopefully you're going to hear, hear a common theme. So verse 2, you might remember this from last week. Hopefully you're going to hear a certain theme come up again and again and again. This is how we're unified. So verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He goes on, called to be his holy people, together with all those people everywhere who call on the name of Christ Jesus, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this again in verse 4, in Christ Jesus, verse 6, Christ amongst you, verse 7. It goes on. Hopefully you're getting my point. So we're not unified into some sort of totalitarian, do what I say, do what I do sort of environment. We're actually unified into the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus has done. That's what brings us together. It's like a common theme. It's a common goal. Okay, so it's not bland unity, it's not some political system that you have to adhere to. It's not 1984. We're unified into Jesus. Um, I was trying to think of ways to explain this. I think music's a really good illustration. I um, play some music at a conference down in YouthWorks. It's called LIT. Um, really cool. Um, I, the, the reason I enjoy it so much is you play with top, top, top quality musos. Um, I'm probably the weakest muso in the group, which is interesting. And you can make your own judgments about that. Um, but these guys have every reason to go and just smash it out, to do solos. Like, well, the guitarists can sit there and do just frothing guitar solos, shredding. Um, the drummer's amazing and sit there and just do whatever he wants. But they actually don't. They play kind of in line. They actually serve the greater whole. And the reason is not because they want to sit there and showboat. They don't want to sit there and bring attention to themselves. It's very similar to the situation in Corinth. They're serving it. We are serving a common goal. We're trying to lift up the name of Jesus. That's our unity. That's the basis of unity. 
verse 10. Look what he says here. This is what James read out. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. That's the basis. That's the power. That's how we're unified. It's not blind unity. It's not force. It's not coercive. It's changed hearts working together to give glory to Jesus. That's what we're called to. That's the call to unity. Of course, it's never as simple as that, is it? And that's the Bible. That's human nature. So we're going to talk about the problem of unity, as we always do. They weren't unified, not even remotely. Look what he says here, verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, Aramaic for Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. And so obviously they were disunited. Um, it's not as simple as saying, though, that they disagreed on some things, you know, politics or philosophy, you know, Aristotle or Plato or who was going to win the AD 55 Olympics in Athens. It's not disagreeing about that. The nature of the disagreement is really important. They were disagreeing on personality. They were disagreeing on kind of almost celebrity. That's the nature of their disagreements. So some, it says here, some were following Paul, who was obviously quite an influential and important figure in the first century church. Some were following Apollos, who was this really charismatic, um, gifted evangelist slash preacher. Some people say that he was the guy who preached the sermon that was going to become Hebrews. Some were following Peter, and Peter was his own evangelist slash church planner slash ministry worker. And they were following these people. Now, these guys aren't bad, but they don't really get it. There's a subtle irony, I think, in the way Paul writes this, and I think you can see this a little bit in the way he writes. It's kind of like a dark kind of humour, Notice at the end, he just sort of tucks it in. Some even, if they get around to it, they follow Jesus. You know how he does that? He just sort of subtly, it's like a subtle jab. Of course, they're supposed to be following Jesus. But he just sort of tucks it in at the end there. Paul's point, or Paul's point that he's trying to help them to get, is they actually don't really get it. They don't really get it. They don't really understand the fundamentals of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what's even more disturbing is that that is exactly what's dividing them. So Paul uses this word quarrelling. So don't think just sort of arguing. Think kind of petty, small-minded, pointless, kind of uh, yeah, small bickering over things that don't matter. I'm reminded of those, I'm probably showing my age here, but there used to be a show called The Muppets where you have those two old guys arguing on the balcony. You know, they have The Muppets show going on. They always used to cross to these old guys who sit there arguing about the show. I think that's what Paul's saying here. It doesn't matter. They're not aggrandising their disagreements. They're, they're made to be petty. We shouldn't really be surprised, though, because this is the way the ancient world kind of worked, you know. It was all about power and charismatic leaders and military strength and um, oratory strength, education strength, like people like Plato and Aristotle or even people like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. And Corinth kind of frothed on this sort of stuff. They loved it because they were kind of like this port city, almost like the, the pathway between the east and the west, kind of Europe, the new world. Think of modern metropolises like, say, uh, San Francisco and New York. They love to think of themselves as the cutting edge of society. And therefore, these Christians were actually drawn to personality and power and influence. They loved it. And so I think that's why they're doing what they're doing. The idea of cult and personality is so powerful. Think Instagram and social media. Think influencers. Such a modern phenomenon, isn't it? It's a very odd. I think we have a couple of influences in our midst. 
So I don't want to be nasty about it or anything, but it's odd if you had to mention influences in, say, 2006. People go, what the heck are you talking about? It's a modern thing. So Corinth love it, but we love it as well. Celebrity, popularity, influence. But Paul's point is that this actually, in the church, actually creates division. Creates division. You don't have to have worked too hard to make toxic social environments, do we, really, if we're honest? I was reminded of this. This is a little bit humorous to me. It was humorous. Maybe you're not going to find it humorous. I watched a special. I got a free subscription to Prime, um, Amazon Prime. And um, there's some pretty dodgy sort of specials. There's this crime special that targeted on a group that I don't even know existed called the Cat Protection Society. I don't know. You guys maybe are aware that there's a thing called the Cat Protection Society. But there's different groups. So there's, there's a group in New South Wales, a group in Queensland, a group in Northern Territory. And their job is to protect cats. That's what they do. They protect cats. And it may sound crazy, but there's actually millions and millions and millions of dollars. Basically, it's wealthy, older women who are involved in the Cat Protection Society. Anyway, I started to watch this sort of special on the Cat Protection Society, and I was amazed as I watched just these stories of just abuse and corruption and bullying and backstabbing and politicking and people sort of factioning around different sort of groups and people and influential people. And it even got to the point where there was physical violence and there was a murder within the Cat Protection Society. Now, we can laugh, and it's not happy. I mean, someone's obviously been killed, and they found out who did it, and she was punished, and it was a lady. Um, but it, it, it just shows that we don't need much to create division, do we? Let's be honest. We don't need, don't need much. We don't need much encouragement. Think of every office you've been involved in. Think of every sports institution. Think of every staff room, every club, every ministry, every church, every mission group, every... Family, extended, non-extended. It's just around the corner, isn't it? At least it has been in my life. It's sad that it's in the church, but it's like kind of like a sewage leak at the bottom of the sea or up, uh, ocean. It's always there. It's always there, but it always kind of seeps to the surface. It's just the reality of kind of human nature. And bear in mind here, Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to a church. It's still a bit divided. We see it in our church as well, don't we? Let's be pointed. I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm not trying to be critical, but it's here. We see the same thing in established church in Cronulla. We see division. I see it. You see it. We feel it. We're all part of it in some ways or another. The question is, when it comes up, do we, do we despair? Do we hop churches? Do we hop cities or suburbs? Because the thing is, when baggage comes up, as it always does, relational stuff, it tends to follow us. And so if we create a situation or we're part of a situation here, it's likely to be to the next place and the next place. It's here, isn't it? So how do we become unified? I've actually kind of changed my point here. I just said, I guess I basically said, how can we learn to become unified? Initially, I had, how do we, how do we become unified? Actually, how do we become, how do we learn to become unified? Because that's what it is. It's a, it's a process. And please, when I say this stuff, I'm not saying that everyone else gets it wrong and Tim gets it right, because I don't get this right. I'm learning, as we all are. Um, look what Paul says as a solution to this situation in Corinth. It's really important the way he does this. So verse 13. 
he says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Then Paul gives this kind of little personal note. It's quite charming. He just sort of throws in there. I don't remember who I baptized. I might have baptized this person, that person, or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But Paul's big point here is that Jesus is not just sort of one option amongst many, but he's the option. He's not just one option that you can choose. He's the option, and he's the basis of unity. And he makes this point in two, by reminding of two key things. This idea of crucifixion. It seems like a funny thing to sow in there, but look what he's saying here. He asks this question, was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? In other words, how are you comparing human leaders, necessary and important and uh, uh, gifted as they were, how are you comparing even those guys with, with Jesus? Jesus who was crucified for you. Did Paul come down as a uh, God in weak, broken, frail human flesh and live a perfect life, then die in your place for your, the rebellion and sin of humankind? Did Paul weep in the garden, pleading for another way, but ultimately give his will to God and walk the, pa- the, the path of pain and sin and rejection? Did Paul take on himself the divine wrath of God on a Roman cross? Of course not. So, so, so why would you follow him? He's just reminding them of what they're actually claiming to believe in the first place, surely. It's not just one option, it's the option. Secondly, baptism. It's a similar idea. Baptism in kind of in the New Testament, it's kind of like a symbol of what Jesus actually did. So you sort of go down into death with him and you rise up again. It's like the symbolism of going up, up and down through water. We see this in another chunk of the New Testament called Romans, the first, uh, fifth chapter. That's how he explains it. But Paul's making the same point. How are you comparing Peter or Paulus or even himself, important as they are, to the one who went into death and came out the other way for you, who passed away through sin and death so that you could be redeemed and have a relationship with God? How can you make that comparison? Peter, Paul, uh, Apollos, they're, they're great, but they're just dudes, aren't they? They're just guys. And this is a bit of a crass sort of way of saying it, but he's kind of pointing to the kind of extra dudedness of Jesus. That's really bad. But hopefully you know what I'm trying to say. Jesus isn't like these people. He's not just one option amongst many, but he is the option. You follow Jesus. I think his point to him is you just really don't get it. And this is where it gets hard, I think, for us, because implicitly by their division, implicitly or explicitly, they were actually denying the very realities that they said they believed. They're denying the very realities that they said they believe. And we need to ask the question then, is, is the vision really that powerful? Is it that destructive? It seems like it is. So what's the solution? Well, I think God's kind of instilled this kind of cleanser into his community, this kind of way to clean out the body of Christ, to use another metaphor. The body actually, the human body has many cleansers. I was doing some reading on human anatomy recently. It's pretty gross and fascinating at the same time, the human body, in case you didn't know. Um, I was reading about how apparently there's parts of our body which are especially open to infection. I didn't know this, but our skin provides a natural barrier. I don't know if you guys know this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I didn't know it. Against infection. But there's parts of our body which are just naturally open. So, for example, the eyes and the mouth, the nose, the ears. But the body has all these things to actually kind of keep away bacteria and invading forces. And one of those most important ones is actually saliva in the mouth. 
So saliva has mild antibacterial properties, I'm told. But it also actually gets contaminants and pollutions. And because it puts, it sounds a bit gross, I'm sorry, but it puts it to the back of our uh, mouth and into our stomach where the acids in our stomach break them all down. And so it's always cleansing. You may not know that, you know, when you're drooling onto your bed at night when you sleep. Sorry, I'm sure you don't do that. I'm sure you don't drool. I'm sure you never drool. I drool. No, I don't. I never drool. But it's cleansing. It's always cleansing. Whenever we breathe, whenever we talk, whenever we eat, it's cleansing and cleansing and cleansing. I think actually God has built a cleanser into his church. Look what he says in verse 17. This is the cleanser. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power, of its power. So it sounds like a bit of an easy answer, but it's really not. The way to be unified, the way to cleanse the community, the way to deal with division is always the gospel. It's always the gospel. What does it even mean? Well, he's actually explained it a little bit earlier. Just a recap, verse 2. What's the gospel? You need to remember the reality that they and we are sanctified holy and made holy in Christ when we're anything but holy. Verse 3 and 4, that we're recipients of grace when we don't deserve it. Verse 5, we're enriched in every possible way when in truth, left to our own and on ourselves, we're in spiritual poverty. Verse 8, presented blameless when we actually have a lot of blame, don't we? Verse 13, Jesus lived and died for them and for us, drew us together when we actually deserve to be cast out. And so when we live those truths out, when we apply them, when we learn to apply them rather, we're cleansing ourselves, aren't we? We're purging ourselves of contaminants. We're being shaped. We're being humbled. We're being reminded of who we are, of our desperation before God, but how saved and loved and treasured we are in Christ. So just to remind ourselves of what we spoke about earlier, the way we handle conflict and division says so much about who we are and about what we really believe. And I think what Paul is doing, when we have conflict and disunity, what we tend to do is sort of say, it's out there, you know, this person did this and this person did that. And, oh, they're so wrong, they're so sinful. But I think what Paul is actually doing, he's getting the issue of conflict and disunity, he's taking it out there and he's putting it in here. And make no mistake, these are deep, deep heart issues, internal realities, internal awarenesses. Um, as I was reflecting on this and preparing, I was reminded of the word of Jesus, you know. Um, he's not really talking directly about conflict, but I think it applies to conflict. But in these situations of sin, you might remember the phrase, Jesus tells us to look at the speck of sawdust in our, uh, in our brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. In other words, take away this huge sin, this huge plank in your eye before you can deal with the wrong in someone else's eye. How we handle sin, uh, disunity, Conflict says so much about who we are. And the health or unhealth of the church is not determined by the reality of conflict and sin amongst us, but how we deal with them when they arise, because they will. They will. Take the plank out of your own eye before you deal with the sin, the speck in someone else's eye. I'm going to finish with a few questions. Just think of this idea of cleansing, of bringing the gospel, to tr- the truths of the gospel to our heart, and then I'll finish. When it comes to conflict or disunity, how have you contributed to any conflict or disunity? What have your own actions, your thoughts, your words, your behaviours have helped to create the situation you're in? 
What sins have you committed that have led to the current situation? What ways in which you have reacted or have interpreted or have repeated or spoken about this has escalated the problem? What, going, what ongoing inner attitudes and beliefs, untruths do you have and need to confess and bring to the light? Do you have a biblical view of a uh, church where sin and conflict will come up and that we deal with it in a gospel-focused manner as we've been talking about? And to raise what I sort of pointed out a little bit earlier, are you, are you able to disagree well? Can you talk to someone without playing the person and play their idea or are you combative, aggressive, difficult, quarrelsome, petty, argumentative, unforgiving, dismissive of others? And lastly, are you regularly being cleansed? Are you working on removing the planks from your own eye before diagnosing the specks in others? Are you letting the truths of the gospel shape you and cleanse you as I think God would have us do? Let me pray as we finish up. Our Lord, we, we confess our sin in this area to you tonight. Uh, as we think about ourselves and our lives, we, we confess the fact that in so many ways we're hopefully, hopelessly disunited. Uh, we are separated from each other in ways that are unpleasing to you. But we do pray for your gospel power in our community that we can learn to love and be shaped more and more to be like Jesus, who laid down his life for the church. Uh, we pray that that power takes hold in our community and that we can love with the supernatural power. And we ask these things humbly in Jesus' name right now. Amen.